Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast. I'm Meg Steenberg, a 2L at Syracuse University College of Law JDI program. This episode is sponsored by NBI. Taught by experienced practitioners, NBI provides practical, skill-based CLE courses attorneys have trusted more than 35 years. Discover what NBI has to offer at nbi-scms.com. Today, we are honored to speak with Zach Newman. Zach is a lawyer whose practice focuses on landlord-tenant, debt collection, and wage dispute cases. Zach is the founder of the COVID-19 Eviction Defense Project in Colorado. He founded this project in April 2020 to respond to urgent questions about housing, homelessness, and community recovery during the spread of the coronavirus. The mission of this team is to keep Coloradans housed by helping to prevent mass evictions and homelessness during and after the pandemic. Zach is also a public policy lecturer at CU Denver's School of Public Affairs and writes about jobs and economic issues at the Aspen Institute. Additionally, he worked at McKinsey & Company, the World Bank, and on various political campaigns for Democrats. He has also helped to launch social enterprise startups. Zach is a graduate of Georgetown Law. Zach, thank you for joining us today, especially during this time, as you continue to assist clients during this pandemic. No, Megan, happy to be on. Thanks for, uh, for having me today. Yeah, well, let's get right to it. Tell us about the COVID-19 eviction defense project and its origins. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's still an evolving story. But when we started this last March or April, we I don't think any of us on the team thought we'd be doing it a full year later. I, uh, before COVID hit, was was in addition to kind of teaching and working at a think tank, just doing a lot of pro bono cases on housing, debt collection, really trying to help people navigate these situations. And in late March, I started seeing a lot of chatter. I threw a message up on Facebook, basically said, if anyone is worried about their housing during COVID, you think you're going to get evicted, you're worried about paying your rent, drop me a note. I'm happy to represent you for free or at least give you a little bit of advice in your case. Go to bed. Don't think about it for about 24 hours. Get up the next day. And I've got like 500 Facebook messages from people I don't know posts on my wall. I'm getting calls from numbers I don't know. And I, I just had this moment where I was like, wow, there's there's really something here. So call a, a friend and a former colleague, a guy named Sam Gilman, who's very, very good at data analytics. Sam crunches some numbers, looks at things and says, this is going to be big. This is going to be enormous. Millions of people are going to be at risk of eviction because of COVID-related housing instability. We, we've got to get ahead of this. And, and that kind of started the whole thing. So From there, we built the project, and today what we do is we offer people legal representation and advice in court. We have a small rental assistance fund. We do a lot of policy advocacy on the housing and debt front. And then we also uh, publish research through the Aspen Institute and other think tanks. So at a very basic level, how do evictions work? And then how do eviction moratoriums counter? Yeah, so an eviction is the legal response that a landlord will undertake when someone has not paid their rent. And so it varies from state to state and by by jurisdiction. But in Colorado, generally speaking, the way an eviction works is that if you have not paid your rent, the day after your rental payment's late, your landlord can put a demand or a notice on your door. You then have the statutorily defined period of time to either pay the rent or depart the premises. 
and if you don't, they can file against you in court. And usually between the day when they file and when it's made its way through the court system, you've got about 14 or 15 days before you lose your housing. Eviction moratoria around the country have tried to respond to this problem by basically taking that legal remedy away from landlords. So if a tenant is experiencing COVID-related hardship and they're unable to pay their rent, then they're not able to pursue an eviction proceeding in court. What amazes me is reading through some of these articles and some of your work and hearing these stories is that how do people even know where to begin? And for some, they're trying to choose, do I do some odd jobs, make some money so I can pay the rent? Do I keep a cell phone? I've got to have a cell phone so I can understand if I have a job. I've And, you know, even just as you said, you post the eviction notice on the door, but you might not have a way to contact anybody or to even know how to begin that process. So how do you ensure that people know and can reach out to you? It's not easy. I mean, we've seen here in Colorado so many default evictions because people don't understand what a demand means or the filing never reaches them by mail, or maybe they get it and they're scared to go to the courthouse. I think for us, really, we focused on you know, taking advantage of opportunities like this to, to tell the story. Obviously, this audience is probably a little bit more up the curve in, in terms of evictions, but trying to get the word out. And then we also do a lot of just marketing and online outreach to people to try to make sure folks know about these services. We also work closely here in Colorado with other groups like ours, Colorado Legal Services, the Colorado Poverty Law Project, and really try to build a community set of resources so that folks have the right representation or the right access to rental assistance when they're facing eviction. And as part of that teamwork on a global scale, you know, your work clearly is influenced by D.C. even, as well as Colorado. How do you then get that word back to them? Like, hey, here's here's reality on the ground. This is what's happening. Here are the loopholes and, and you know, helping from that policy side. Yeah, so, you know, the the Biden administration these past few weeks since they've been in office has been really great in their outreach. We got various calls from folks at HUD, at Treasury, at the White House. And, you know, I don't think we're special in that respect. It seemed like they were working through a really long list of legal providers, rental assistance providers, trying to understand the situation on the ground. I think actually just today, Treasury revised the FAQs related to the administration of federal rental assistance dollars. And I think that's largely the result of them reaching out to a lot of different providers around the country to better understand the situation on the ground. So on any given day, how many people, families, do you assist at any given time? Oh, man, it's a roller coaster. It's, I mean, some days we've had 50 cases walk through the door in a matter of hours, and that obviously feels like a lot. I think other days you have a smaller number. It really seems to vary by day of the week, by how fast rental assistance dollars are getting processed. Obviously, there's been a lot of regulatory statutory change on evictions, both at the state and the federal level over the past year. So changes in policy also means that the day after a policy changes, we usually see an uptick or, you know, depending Mm -hmm. on the policy, a, a downtick as well. So that kind of shows, too, a level of awareness in terms of as they know things are expiring or ramping up, they're coming to you. Maybe it could also speak to landlords tracking policy. So a lot of the time a policy will change, someone gets a demand, maybe because a policy has changed, and then the tenant saying, I just got this demand on my door. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And so then we kind of pick up that case and and run with it. So for all the people that come to you, are you able to keep 
them in their homes? Do you also get them out of leases to find a more affordable place? How do you, how many people have you been, I guess the percentage of, you know, those you can, you can assist. If people get to us early enough, we're going to be able to help them. I think the kind of case that's most challenging for us is, you know, once someone has already maybe been to court and they got that eviction judgment or, or, you know, they got a default judgment because they didn't show up, then it's a lot harder to intervene and help out. But if someone's calling us the first time the demand is placed on their door, or even after the filing has taken place, which is the second step in the process, there's usually something we can do to help. But I think this is one of the real risks for tenants, right? I mean, the policy is very unclear. The law is very unclear. Where you get resources is not super navigable. And so a lot of the cases we see are people who are fairly deep in the process and are basically running out of options by the time they get to us. What kind of loopholes are you seeing? So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna plead uh, uh, a, a little bit of ignorance because this varies okay. by state, but I think the biggest loophole we have observed over the past year is that the CDC moratorium, as interpreted, does not include evictions based on termination of lease at the end of a lease or month to month leases. And so you have a number of evictions where people are non-paying, the 12 months of their lease is expired. And they basically get served with a notice because the lease is expired. I think in these informal month-to-month lease situations, you're also seeing the same thing. And so for us, that's the biggest loophole in that you have this whole category of people who haven't been able to pay their rent. Now the time is up and their landlords are able to evict them because it's not being filed as a non-payment eviction case. Mm. What kind of trend do you see or pattern in the demographics? Do you see a pattern? Is it young, old, single, married? Who's impacted the most in Colorado that you're seeing? Yeah, so the U.S. Census Bureau does a weekly pulse survey on housing stability, and they ask a few questions related to rent. One is, were you able to fully pay your rent last month? And then do you anticipate being able to pay your rent fully next month? Right now, approximately one in five Americans is behind on their rent, but those numbers are much higher for communities of color here in the U.S. and then also for uh, people with children and household. And so this is not a problem that's affecting people equally. People of color are disproportionately impacted, and then parents of young children also suffer greater consequences. So the risk is, is significant, but it's especially concentrated within those two demographics. And your eviction assistance, it goes back and covers debts as well as it's forward-looking. Is that correct? Yeah, so we started our rental assistance product last year, and, and that's exactly right. It pays past rent. It also tries to pay future rent. Uh, very recently in December, federal policy came in line with that. And I think we really see this as having a few benefits. One is that it's extra stabilizing for the tenant. It gives them a chance to actually get back up on their feet. Two, it creates some certainty and some stability for the landlord because those next few months are taken care of so they can pay their mortgages and their taxes and take care of their obligations. But maybe most importantly for processors of rental assistance, it cuts down on the application load because when you're paying someone's past rent and their future Mm -hmm. rent, you're not going to see them for a few months and, and maybe never again. Whereas when you pay it every single month, it's a new application every single time. Yeah, that definitely seems like a much more efficient process. So as the legal assistance turns on funding, from which sources do you draw your funds? Yeah, so we've been primarily foundation-backed. So most of the rental assistance money that we have provided has been given to us by various local and national foundations, 
although primarily from an organization called Gary Community Investments here in Denver, Colorado. They've been a great and an early partner. So we'll we'll definitely shout them out for the, the early support of the work. I think longer term, we're in the process of transitioning to being an administrator of, of public dollars, although that brings with it, you know, a lot of different administrative burdens that an organization such as ours needs to needs to navigate. And this funding, these are not just loans, these are grants. That's correct. Yeah, we, we are primarily doing grants to tenants who are unable to pay their rent. And do you think that at the level that you've seen, Coloradans are receiving enough funding from state and federal sources, or do you anticipate a greater need? Do you see a greater need right now and anticipate an even greater need in the coming months? Yeah, it's it's interesting. So in Colorado, the state legislature passed $55 million in rental assistance. And then our share of the federal rental assistance, our share of that $25 billion passed in December, is about $385 million. So the total pot right now is $440 million. So question one is, will that be enough? Uh, in January alone, the state received 55 million in rental or 53 million, excuse me, in rental assistance applications. So the money is moving quickly. And then the second question is, how fast can these be processed? So while they received 53 million dollars in requests in January, they're still working through that backlog. And every day, the backlog seems to get bigger and bigger. That's not a criticism of the state or the agencies that are processing it, but. That 53 million is something like 15 or 16,000 applications. And it's just, it's a real capacity issue to go through the paperwork, talk to each person, get the check out the door. There's a lot of work that goes into each payment. And so I think there's a money question, but there's also just a, a speed to deal or a time of processing question that a lot of actors in the space are still trying to resolve. Well, this has jumped exponentially during the pandemic, the housing stability issue and eviction, as you said, you were working on this even before the pandemic. What kind of levels did you see prior to the pandemic? God, nothing like this. I mean, you know, I think eviction has been a a hidden problem in the United States for a really long time. But, you know, in Colorado, I think the eviction lab data suggests that in any given year, you know, three to five percent of tenants might face an eviction proceeding. Right now, with one in five Americans not paying rent, bump that up to a full 20% of the population that's evictable. And you've gone from something that's like a really cruel, difficult problem that just destroys lives to something that could impact someone you know, that could affect your neighbor or your friend or a family member. It's, uh, it is a problem that has just scaled so dramatically and in a way we, we never thought would happen. We are speaking with Zach Newman, founder of COVID-19 Eviction Defense Project in Colorado. We'll be right back. If you want to stay up to date on today's hottest issues, strengthen your knowledge with practical how-to courses, and learn the latest legal strategies and troubleshooting tips, then NBICLE has what you need. NBI courses range from basic to advanced and cover all legal disciplines. Learn online and on your schedule with our on-demand courses. Visit nbi-sems.com and save 50% on your next CLE course with promo code NBI-STUDENT. And we are back now with Zach Newman, founder of COVID-19 Eviction Defense Project in Colorado. Talk us through other states. They they have similar programs. Did you model yours after others? It seems as though, and we discussed this, you are right there at the beginning of the need. You anticipated it. But 
How did you look to others? How did others influence you? Or have you been influencing other states? You know, I think there are just a really large number of great national groups that have kind of arisen in the wake of, of COVID to respond to housing instability. And then, of course, there are a lot of groups that have been working on this issue for, for years and years. And so I think what we've seen on the landscape is a lot of cross-state collaboration, both in terms of publication of research, but sharing of legal practices, talking about rental assistance. And in a lot of respects, what's been so interesting and compelling about this moment is that it's brought together advocates who maybe were working in their silos in their city or their community or their state. And now they're much more a part of a national conversation on how we respond to this, both during COVID, but also after COVID, because really non-payment eviction shouldn't happen. That's not something that should take place in the United States. We have lawyers, we have rental assistance. It's a great investment. And so I think what we're going to see potentially coming out of this moment is a lot more dedication to ensuring that people aren't removed from their homes when they're simply unable to pay their rent. And so toward that end, for anyone in law school or fresh out or, or beyond, can, how can they help to accept and allow others who are, don't have a law degree yet to come in and assist you or any other program in other states like this one? Oh, man. I mean, we could, <laughs> we could use all the help we could get, for sure. It's, uh, it's a crazy journey, and there's always a need for intakers and volunteers and navigators so if you're in Colorado or you have an interest in Colorado, we'd love to hear from you. But other states have programs as well. So, I mean, a great place to, to turn is the local legal services office, wherever you live. These folks obviously are all over the country. They've been doing this work for years. They're usually the best people in the community at it. They certainly are here in Denver. Our CLS attorneys are the very best. And so that's a great way to plug in with the work and, and learn more about housing and eviction law. You know, this is an all-encompassing need. You've touched upon uh, some of those aspects and and the passion you hear it in your voice and clearly in dedicating the last year and beyond that through pro bono work. And I can imagine that it is incredibly rewarding on so many levels, not the least of which is you've got something tangible at the end of the day. Someone gets to remain in their home. But why is housing stability so important to you? You saw this need right from the very beginning and, and why? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think my... I don't know, passion or investment in this issue is is from experiences I had as a kid, but then also what the data says. So I, you know, when I was a kid and an adolescent, I had a decent number of friends who faced eviction or foreclosure. And, you know, those were the friends that would then miss debate practice the next day or wouldn't show up for football or who'd really have trouble getting their schoolwork done. And I think just seeing firsthand what it does to families, what it does to children and families was really convicting from from a young age. But then the second thing is that the data just is overwhelmingly powerful. I mean, families that experience eviction, uh, it's much harder for people in the family who are working to keep their jobs. Children in household really struggle with grades and attendance after an eviction. Health goes down, mental health goes down, ability to get rehoused is severely impacted and people often jump around and experience housing instability literally for years, for up to seven years after they've been evicted. And so really when you look at the economic data, all of those kind of perceptions and feelings from growing up around this problem to some extent really become a lot more pronounced. And so for me, it's kind of both of those things, but it is just unfathomable to imagine that one in five Americans this year and next might go through this experience. And I just think it's something we've got to do everything in our power to stop. You've had a varied 
career. Let's talk about law school first. Why did you go? What inspired you? That's a good question. And a question I ask now as I pay off my student loans every day <laughs> still. Um, you know, I was doing something much different at the time. I was living in D.C. I was working at the World Bank, working on, you know, like rule of law, governance, how you build justice systems in, in post-conflict countries. And this was more than 10 years ago now. And I just kept coming back to law. And, you know, in D.C., they've got all these great night programs at GW and Georgetown. And I said, I want to do that. I want to learn how to do this. I want to get good at it. I want to figure it out because I think it'll, you know, intersect nicely with the work I'm doing. Now, life changes. I graduated law school and left the World Bank at the same time and kind of never went back to that space. But really glad I went to law school and, and really enjoyed the experience and even more enjoy the work I get to do, get to do today. What's sort of the most important takeaway from law school? Was it the, the research, the writing, the advocacy, or is it just a, sort of another tool in your toolkit? Yeah, you know what was interesting is being a night student and working full-time, you don't have the traditional law school experience. You're, you know, you're kind of rushing to study. You're like sneaking your law books into work and hoping your boss didn't catch you to some <laughs> extent. You're like really tired in class, but I think having that experience maybe showed me that you can do different things with the law and that there is room for flexibility and that bringing law into other areas of work, like pairing law with rental assistance in the case of what we're doing now or taking law and using it to inform research related to a policy problem can really be interesting. And so I think having that early lay between, or excuse me, early overlay between what I was doing at my day job and then going to law school at night has kind of I don't know, inform the way we approach our practice around evictions. With that in mind, what would your advice be to someone who's in law school right now and maybe doesn't have that same perspective or that ability to see it? I don't know if I would frame this as a regret. I, regret is not the right word, but it took me so long in life to like go off the path and to try something a little weird or to do my own thing. I think my advice would be, you know, if you don't get that big law job or that clerkship you want, it isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think sometimes these experiences that we're thrown into or where we have to be a little bit entrepreneurial can actually be the most rewarding in life. And it, it never feels like it when you've missed on the thing you've wanted. But I don't know, this project for me has been really rewarding. And I think absent a few crazy things happening, like I wouldn't be doing this today. So I, I don't know. I think kind of chart your own path and try different things because I think they can be really rewarding. And so it sounds like, I mean, you've done political campaigns, World Bank, firms. I mean, what, what's been your favorite experience or is it just pulling it all together and realizing it then later in life? Oh, this, this has been my favorite experience. I mean, it took me 35 years to get here, but I, you know, I think this is like the work I find most enjoyable and I've never had this level of passion for, for anything I've done. And I mean, it's, it's tough, right? Like we're scrapping every day trying to trying to raise money to to pay our small team or to pay people's rent. But I don't know, it's been really rewarding and challenging. And I just, I don't think I would trade what I'm getting to do now for anything. When the pandemic is done, will you continue this work? And I'm assuming the pandemic will be <laughs> at least phase out. Will you continue this work? Will you shift to another idea or passion? Do you see other areas opening up with through this exposure? I think this notion of bringing rental assistance and legal services and 
research and policy together into one shop is, is powerful. And I think it makes you a better advocate for your clients. And so COVID or not, we're going to we're gonna continue to do this. Our goal is to stop all evictions in Colorado. And, you know, when the pandemic's over, it just means we'll get to be in person, which will be a lot of fun because we've been working on Zoom for over a year now or coming up on a year. But I don't think we're going anywhere. Thank you so much for your time. Really yeah. appreciate it. Zach Newman, founder of COVID-19 Eviction Defense Project in Colorado. Again, thanks for joining us. Thanks for reminding us, too, about how housing stability uh, impacts everyone on so many levels. No, Megan, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. And I hope you all enjoyed this episode of the Law Student Podcast. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the ABA Law Student Podcast on Apple Podcasts. And you can also reach us on Facebook at ABA for Law Students and on Twitter at ABA LSD. That's it for now. I'm Meg Steenberg. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.